There's not an infinite number of ways in which humans can act on sexual desire. Human bodies haven't changed. But the cultural landscape around sex has. What people believed about it, the morality surrounding it, and the paraphernalia concerning it have all changed a lot. Sex has a history. History Hit's launching a new podcast to explore this history, which is called Betwixt the Sheets. Its host is Dr. Kate Lister, author of A Curious History of Sex, lecturer at Leeds Trinity University, and owner of the online research project thewhoresofyore.com. I caught up with Kate to talk about sex, desire, witches, impotence, condoms, and syphilis in the 16th and 17th centuries. It may not surprise you to learn that what follows contains some content of a sexually explicit nature. Kate, it's lovely to talk to you today. I am really pleased that you are doing a podcast for History Hit. It's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to listen to it. I'm so excited to be here and thank you so much for asking me on. It's just lovely to finally talk to you. Yeah, thanks for letting me in your world. Why are you a historian of sex? Is that a really obvious question? No, I get asked that a lot and I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to that one. Probably the simplest answer is because I'm quite fascinated by sex. And I think that maybe it's some deep-rooted psychological issue that a mental health care professional could help us with. But the thing that I really like about the study of it is that there's a few universal levelers in life, things that we all experience. Eating would be like one of them, eating, sleeping, shitting, sex, sex desire, those things. And they kind of bind us all together no matter where we are in what time or space. And I just find that endlessly fascinating, I think, because we can all relate to sex or food or something like that in a way that has a very immediate meaning for us that allows us to relate to what we're reading about the past in a different way. So, yeah, and I think that's what fascinates me about it is something that we've got in common with like Henry VIII, you know? We might not have much in common with him, but we know what it's like to have a crush on someone and have them not fancy you back. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I suppose there's a kind of tension between the fact that there's a a wide, but in the end, limited range of things that Mm. can be done when it comes to sex. Yes. But the culture around it, the attitudes to it, how people feel about it, all of that stuff has a history. Yeah. The actual sex acts themselves have changed very little. Like, you know, occasionally we come up with some new form of technology to do something that we think is new, but it's not really that new. But what's been allowed, what's been taboo, what's been illegal, what's been encouraged, what's been controlled, it changes so vastly. And kind of what you see when you're looking all throughout history is is the cycles of it, that it's very cyclical. There's kind of waves of permissiveness of certain things, and then there's a real clamp down and, oh, let's not do that. And I think that I'm always fascinated about what is it about sex that makes us so anxious and so in need to control it? Because no other animal on the planet does that. No other animal has that level of anxiety and hang-up. And I mean, they've got their own mating rituals and everything, but you don't have hyenas trying to stop other hyenas having sex with that particular hyena because that's not how you're supposed to do it. It's a really human thing that we're really hung up about it. And I always want to know why. What is it, you know? It's really interesting, though, that this is a period when there's just a real clampdown on 
ways of people having sex. I mean, this is the period in which we get the first laws against sodomy. Yeah, see, that fascinates me as well, is that how did people understand their sexuality in times all throughout history? Like now we have different language, register, vocabulary. You can say you are gay. You might come out as gay. I am gay. And that wasn't something that would have happened before about the 19th century when those kind of words were coming out. But making sodomy illegal is a strong reaction to something that makes me wonder what was going on at the time? How did people understand that? What I've learned over the course of the last year and speaking to people is that the crime of sodomy, I talked to Tom Hamilton about sodomy in France and I've talked about same-sex marriages in Italy quite recently with Dr. Marcocci. And one thing I learned is that sodomy as a crime is directed just as much at men and women as it's directed at men with men. So it's about... Once again, sex that doesn't produce children. Not that's the problem. Children. And that was the definition of sodomy, wasn't it? It was anything that's unnatural. Yeah, so it includes animals, of course, as well. I'd stand by that one, though. I'm happy for that one to stay illegal. That's fine with me, that, that bit. Don't try and make me into some sort of bestiality defender here, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, then. That kind of ties into this. We've got this like rise of the witch trials, which is targeted at largely at older people who can't reproduce, combined with sodomy laws, which are again attacking people that can't produce. I mean, what was going on there? Why this sudden emphasis on you must have babies, have babies, have a baby right now? It's not sudden at all. It's been a tendency throughout history. I mean, I think you can see it through the Middle Ages. You can see it stretching back into thinking about the early church fathers. There's a sense in which sex is linked completely to producing children mm. and sex that doesn't do that is a problem. So masturbation is a problem. Sex for sale. Yeah, all of these things. Well, actually, sex for sale was very interesting. The other thing in this period that we got sort of clamping down on civic prostitution in the late Middle Ages, it's perfectly common to have a licensed brothel and yeah. it's sort of accepted that men are going to go to it. But one thing I find really interesting is that that disappears at the same sort of time as the Reformation, but they do seem to have parallel tracks. One is not causing the other. And there's a sense that they thought that men needed oh, yeah. that expression of their desires and there are a lot of men who can't marry until they've got to a certain status of their career you know you can't marry as a journeyman you have to be a master and so that's provided for them but at the time that this change happens we've got people saying on the sort of religious end of things with the reformation that this is immoral but it seems to start of its own accord and i haven't quite fathomed that so it's a fascinating period and I suppose one thing I wanted to ask you about was something that I learned from your book, which was about the 15 sodomites burnt in the Netherlands, mm. 1400 to 1550, because that's really rare. I see loads of examples of people being criminalised who are men for having sex with men. And mm. that's, by the way, to go to your earlier question, not because they are thought of as gay. It's about the activity, not the, the identity the itself, in this period. Yeah. But I've never really come across evidence of women being women criminalised be, crim for yeah. their desire for other women. For some reason, the Dutch really found their niche with that. I haven't seen it anywhere else either, but they executed a number of people as female sodomites for the crime of female sodomy with lesbianism. I can't remember the full names, but one was called Jeanne, and she had been caught having sex with a younger woman. And yeah, so I'm not sure what was going on in Holland at the time, because 
lesbianism doesn't seem to have been punished to the same degree elsewhere at all. In fact, it very much, we'll just pretend that's not happening in the legal states, it seems to be. Yes, it's not made into law. No, not made into law. I mean, if you look at the pornography, it's most definitely there. People knew about it. It was sort of eroticised and the School of Venus pornography book, the erotica book, that features lesbian sex and Samuel Pepys was desperately ashamed of himself having bought and read it. They're not burning lesbians in the UK. That seems to have been a uniquely Dutch phenomenon. It's also such a strange punishment because burning Mm. is normally something that's handed out for heresy. So it's suggesting that in some way... Well, I suppose it's suggesting that it's contrary to the law of God. Mm. But it's one thing that doesn't really feature very much in the church's understandings of these things at this time either. And I don't think we were burning men for sodomy either. They weren't burnt. I mean, not that that makes it any better, but they were hanged, I think. That's right. It was a crime in England, at least. Waterlord Hungerford being the first person to be executed for it although I think there are other causes in his Mm. particular case so I think there's more going on than that one thing but yes it's hanging it's a crime like theft or something yeah and so I can't say very much about lesbianism is a fascinating history and it's one of the more hidden histories and it's because well where do you look for for the evidence and in the law courts it doesn't show up very much until you get to somewhere like Holland where they are prepared to execute women for the same crime and I think that it's kind of like a trespassing into gender roles really that's doing it that's making it they're basically pretending to be men that's the viewpoint and that they need to be punished for that but over here we weren't doing that but we were getting very anxious about things like coffee that's what I can understand (laughs) but one of my favorite things about this period is it was probably a satirical pamphlet in I think it was 1674 And it was supposed to be written by women in London, the wives of London, because they were devastated that their husbands were now in these newfangled coffee shops and that coffee was supposed to wither your sexual desire and your potency and that it was rendering them useless and no life and no virility whatsoever. This is fascinating. So do we know anything about who produced it? So it was called The Women's Petition Against Coffee and we don't know who wrote it. I would put money on saying that it's satirical because it's too funny to not be satirical but it calls coffee base black thick nasty bitter stinking nauseous puddle water wow yeah starbucks could not come fast enough (laughs) (laughs) they should put that actually on the outside of their shops that could (laughs) (laughs) not starbucks in particular this is not a libel no no other puddle water establishments are available and then it's sort of said that this awful berry dried their husband's vital seed up and that they were no good to them in bed and made them impotent So the pamphlet was satirical, but it taps into something. There must have been some kind of anxiety. Yes, because even if you're concerned about your husband spending time talking with his mates at the coffee shop, you Mm. know, the latest alternative to the pub, why does that manifest itself in that particular Mm. concern or that particular satire? I don't know the answer to that. For a while, I wondered if it's because coffee's imported, that there was a certain amount of, like, it's a foreign influence, something that they should just be on good old-fashioned ale. But I don't know why it is. I mean, there's this theory that coffee dried the body up, so it reduced sexual potency. But maybe they just drank too much coffee and couldn't get it up. Maybe 
I don't know if that's a thing that happens. Is that a medical thing? <laughs> that's not a medical thing. I spoke to Matthew Green, actually, Dr. Matthew Green, about coffee some time ago. So maybe you should ask him about it at some point. You know, yeah. coffee and sex. Coffee and sex, what was going on there? I suspect it's because, as you said, their husbands were spending a lot of time in these newfangled coffee shops, which was the threat, really. And they weren't spending time with them. And I know that the coffee shops were becoming hotspots for sex workers who were looking for clients. So there's a certain a sort of an air of kind of naughtiness about them. And maybe it's that that's doing it. Can I talk to you about language, actually, you saying Absolutely. sex worker? Because obviously that's the expression we would use now. And when you use the word lesbian earlier as well, you know, we've got people like Jesus Benneth, for example, writing and saying we could talk about lesbian-like activities in history oh, or people. Okay. But lesbian is such a sort of loaded term. that Even in the early 20th century, you might have women who desire other women but wouldn't call themselves lesbian because it's kind of yep. political. And I suppose sex worker is a term that has its own recent history as well. How do you think about using language? What's your kind of rationale with regard to words to do with sex? I think that history is always going to be offensive. You can't pretend that it's not and would be doing people a disservice. It's the language used and the kind of the attitudes and the things you've got to try and capture. But you're bringing out the nuance and you're trying to understand where we've arrived at today when you're using that. But I think, especially if you're talking about something like sex work, where sex workers are very much around today have community have rights and are fighting for those rights and when you're talking about the history of sex work it does impact them today so you've got a duty of concern and care for how you're talking about it and it's all about kind of exploding the nuance isn't it it's like when 10 years ago 15 years ago people would have just said prostitute not thought very much of it it would have just been just absolutely fine but when you actually try and unpick that a little bit it's like well what do you mean by that because it's a really densely layered do you mean somebody that's selling sex full-time and that's their full-time occupation or do you mean somebody that is selling sex to top up a wage or do you mean someone that does it from time to time or do you mean somebody that dances erotic dancing or because there's such a wide spectrum of people selling erotic services that if you just label it as prostitute can be quite limiting so the problem with prostitute is that it has become too capacious a term or that it's judgmental it does carry a lot of judgment it does it's quite a judgmental word if i say the word prostitute to you i don't think it brings up much positive imagery and there's a lot of stigma that needs to be unpicked because it's the stigma that's really dangerous to people it dehumanizes people it allows violence against them to be enabled because they've already been dehumanised and the word is it's a part of that it's a legal word you can use the word so it does carry weight of stigma but also I think that it's quite a blunt tool you know like for example I was talking to somebody who researched sailors in the 18th century and she discovered like this term sailors wives they wouldn't have called themselves prostitutes or whores or anything like that but they're in that kind of market because they have Clients that go away on ships and then come back. And so if you're trying to capture something with that word, you're missing the nuance. Like, would the girls working in the cancan halls in 19th century France, would they have called themselves prostitutes? You know, so that there's a lot of nuance that's not so being caught. we need to get at the words that they might have used about yes. themselves. Yes. Because if we replicate the words that people used in judgment of them in the past, then all we're doing is rehearsing that kind of violence towards them. Yeah, and when we use our own words, they're always tangled up with our own sense of judgment. So a good example that I've found of that is that when the Spanish conquistadors came and took over the Aztec community, there was a practice among the Aztecs, and I'm going to pronounce it terribly now, the 
Aluwiawen. Sorry to anyone who speaks Spanish. And they were translated by Spanish as being whores or prostitutes. But the word itself in the Aztec means bringer of joy. So something's lost in translation there. You suddenly have labelled them with that quite judgmental word when this practice clearly isn't how the Aztecs themselves saw it. It's so difficult, though, isn't it? I mean, I've done some work on women in France in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, and many of those were people who one might call sex workers or prostitutes. It's hard to know what to say because the words used about them at the time are even more judgmental. Mm, They're called mm. putain, which is like whore, but Mm -hmm. pretty extreme version of that. And it's definitely a word of insult. But one thing we don't have is huge amounts of testimony from these women. So occasionally I can follow the life of one particular woman and see her journey into the trade and that there's one in particular who comes to mind called Catherine Formantine who became someone who ran a brothel herself as she got older Mm. and seems to have inducted lots of other girls and women into the business and perhaps got there because she wanted to marry somebody who she wasn't allowed to marry and the person her father had set her up to marry she didn't want to marry. Anyway, so the marriage options fall away. I can't absolutely do a sort of path here of causality, Mm. but that's what I know about her before and then she turns Mm. up working in sex and we see so little testimony from her and she features quite a lot in the sources, whereas the vast majority of these women just disappear from the historic record. Yeah, we've got no real way of knowing how they understood themselves, how they navigated their place in the world. But you've got like a few voices here and there. So if you talk about like the famous Venetian courtesans who were also poets and playwrights, but I mean, they were exceptionally (laughs) rare and they're amazing, but they don't capture the voices of working class women, of regular women. And because it was so shamed and stigmatized, people just didn't talk about it. So the sources you have available to try and understand it always skew the data slightly because it's a court record or it's a medical report or it's we just don't have the unbiased testimony of somebody who was selling sex in whatever period it is and if you talk to sex workers today and sex worker rights activists you can understand why it's only just now really with the advent of social media that sex workers have been allowed to form communities and have a voice for the first time in this dialogue all throughout history they've been spoken over and about and for I think they definitely had a community in previous periods. Mm. I think it's just that we don't have records. We don't have the the evidence. We can't look into that secret world. It was there and it's so frustrating. It's like it's just out of sight. You know it was there. There will have been communities. There will have been groups. They would have supported them because they lived on the margins. It would have reinforced this sense of identity. And I spoke to someone once who said that the two places of sort of entirely women refuge almost with the nunneries and the brothels and I thought that was so interesting they said that like the nunneries women would go and just live together but also they'd live together in brothels and it was a sort of effectively like a matriarchal society run by women with women working there that that is interesting hi there I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. 
Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. It seems to me that the 16th century must have been a pretty dangerous time to be doing this, though, because you've got the sort of onset of new diseases like syphilis or the pox, and there's a complete lack of reliable contraception in this period, Mm. as far as I can tell. Yeah, there was. It's a very dangerous profession as far as health goes for that exact reason. And these new diseases were absolutely terrifying. Syphilis is scary now, but we don't even see the full effects of it. Usually people walk around without any noses. It was a horrendous disease and really dangerous. And when syphilis arrived, there was suddenly a fight on amongst the medical profession to find out what we can do to cure it. And you do see the first early condoms around this time, not condoms that worked, it was Gabrielle Fallopio who came up with what we recognise as being the first condom. And it was this kind of wrap that went around the penis that was infused with wine and mercury and all these spices. And you kind of think, well, maybe that would work. And then you get to the end of the descriptive passage and you're supposed to put it on after you've had sex. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's completely useless. So but that yeah. must be mid-16th century, Fallopio, yep. yes? Right. Yep. Because so, I had only ever come across the sort of sheep's guts ones, which must be 17th century, I guess. Yes, you start to get those being refined and used, and they were designed to be reused as well. So you would have this sheep gut, animal gut, sometimes fish gut condom that would be kind of dried out and you'd have to rehydrate it somehow before putting it over the penis and then tying it around the end with like a little bow or... <laughs> pieces string or something and it would offer some limited protection but not enough not enough you can still get animal gut condoms today not ones that are tied on with bits of string but they, wait a they, second wait a second you can still get them today How you come? can still get them today lamb gut condoms they don't protect against venereal disease but they will protect against pregnancy do you yeah. have any insight Dr. Lister, into why someone would choose that over something else. They're supposed to feel better, which is the eternal battle when it comes to condoms, is that the animal gut membrane feels more skin-like, less like latex, but they don't protect against venereal diseases. So I don't know if they're kind of like a novelty thing now. They're certainly not reusable. They're one use, single use, and you don't tie them on the end, but they're not the best method of contraception out there. But in the 16th, 17th century, that's probably all that you had. That and look and the pull-out method, time-honoured, if wholly ineffective yes, method. Yes, failing Catholics for centuries. Yes, absolutely. But it was a scary time for anyone to be having sex, really, I think. And the vast majority of 
women who were married would not have ever experienced any form of contraception. So the ways of trying to limit the family size were mm. limited. I often wonder that, like, and again, without we don't have access to those conversations and what was going on. Who told who what? Like, did people sit down with each other and sort of, presumably they did, like they passed on little tips and tricks and try this and try that and don't do this and don't do that. And, you know, jumping after sex to try and dislodge sperm was recommended by some ancient Greek writer or something. But wives know that. Like, was it passed on or was it just no idea? Last was... Yeah, the key question, I suppose, is whether they knew when they were more likely to be fertile in any given month. Ah. Did they know that? Because they didn't know they were pregnant as early as people might today because Mm -mm. they don't, you know, have any urine tests. They roll over and have a cigarette and a pregnancy test and you can find out. So pregnancy was only really acknowledged from the moment that the child moved so the quickening that's when the the soul was thought to enter the baby so before that point you've got the unreliable categories of you know your period stop but they might stop for all manner of reasons yeah i mean breast swelling perhaps but so many things they point to as being possible signs of pregnancy so it feels that there's a sense of real uncertainty about it and you know for good reason you know there's a lot of potential for miscarriage Oh, God, yeah. And it would have been really difficult to get any kind of information anyway because censorship was becoming increasingly prevalent at this time. We get increasing laws around what is and isn't okay to say and do and publish. And so a sex ed manual is definitely out. That's right. I mean, so that you can't have sort of sexually obscene books, but... From what you've already said, I think that most women are going to be learning their knowledge from other women Mm. anyway. They're probably not going to be reading it female rates of literacy are much lower than men anyway so perhaps those seem to be much more written by men for men anyway i think apart from when we get into the 17th century things change you get sort of works on midwifery and stuff Mm. but don't you think women must be talking to each other they must be talking to each other mustn't they and like you know cluing each other in and giving each other tips and tricks and i mean and i suppose as well it's like to a certain extent if you'd got married and like i suppose you want to have the baby don't you especially if you're in privileged positions army Anne Boleyn knew all about that so it was just let's go at it hammer and tongue well you do but after a certain number perhaps not i mean i've read susan broomhill's work on the poor and she talks about how they quite often when they're looking for poor relief they say things like you know they're overburdened with small children this is 16th century france and you can imagine that if you don't have any form of contraception if you're not breastfeeding as well because Mm. quite a lot of women are sending their children to be breastfed by wet nurses so they've got no natural kind of protection Mm. against getting pregnant and in fact even an exaggerated sense if you don't breastfeed immediately after and if the baby is away from the mother it actually increases the chances of a woman falling pregnant again quite quickly because the body thinks the baby's died and so tries to replace it quickly so you can imagine that you've got pregnancy after pregnancy all of which is very dangerous and then potentially lots and lots of children to look after you think you might want to stop that i wonder as well as like how were fertility rates and again we just don't have this kind of data available is well what were the fertility rates like given that diet wasn't as good as it is today and that diseases were right maybe people were they blessed first i suppose you'd just not have sex wouldn't you after about maybe the 18th child you just say no well, people are having a lot of children and the population is increasing during this period, mm-hmm. I think. And that's despite the fact that lots of children die in the first year of life or in the first 10 years of life. So 
I think they must have been quite high. And I think that's given that people are marrying in sort of their mid 20s. And you're fertile for a good like 20 years after that, possibly. So a baby a year? Potentially. Oh, wow. Or at least wow. every two. Yeah. They're pregnant on average every other year. They must have been able to practice, not everybody, but some rudimentary family birth control because not all the families were this big. So whether it was like they weren't having sex that much, whether it was that people weren't fertile, maybe there was rudimentary knowledge around, you know, the pull-out method. Maybe they were doing that. It's difficult to say, isn't it? It could equally be that the couple aren't getting on. Aren't getting the, on. The, yes. The, the husband is away with work or that the children are dying. Or that they're not necessarily having penetrative sex. I think that we get very hung up today on that the only sex that counts is penetrative sex. Put that in there and then that's sex. Maybe there wasn't as big an emphasis on that. And as you said, you know, we discovered the clitoris <laughs> in <laughs> the early modern period. So maybe sex for pleasure, we often don't think that they were doing that. Not historians, but just like in general, we often don't conceive of people in the past having sex for fun. But they will have been doing, and there will have been sex for pleasure and foreplay. And... I think there's so many interesting things in that. It, certainly that female desire was thought necessary up until the 18th century to conceive. So mm. a woman needs the climax in order to have a baby, which is great on the one hand, not so great if a woman is raped and then is pregnant afterwards because it seems like she's been complicit. There we go. But I think you're absolutely right on the preoccupation with penetrative sex because it is clear that in the context of what we've been talking about, a lack of really reliable or appealing contraception, the vast majority of people are owing having sex in the context of marriage or about to be married. Right? They're planning on it, so it's allowed. And when I say sex, I mean penetrative sex. So they're probably doing other things and doing all manner of other things in order to stave off the sort of sex that produces children. I think that that would make sense. If you're not married, is the repercussions of having a baby outside of wedlock, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a poor woman, they're not good. It's not a nice ending most of the time for this. And it's like, well, then what do you do? I think it's why you see that story showing up again and again and again in accounts written by women who are in sex work is that they get seduced and then they get abandoned. And then, well, where do you go? Where do you go? Well, you can't really work. You can't have career women at that time. So you need to make your money, I suppose. But yeah, what would you do if you're a Tudor woman to increase contraception? It's like just going back to Anne Boleyn, because she was desperate to have a baby, wasn't she? Do you know of any sources that they would increase fertility? I don't know. There, there might well be research out there on it. Actually, well, I mean, one thing that's sad and I think happened to Anne, certainly happened to Mary I and other women, is that they were so desperate to have a child that they would have these phantom pregnancies or pseudosiasis where the mind so desires to be pregnant that the oh, body produces so the symptoms of that, which is a fascinating insight into the power of the mind. But, you know, really a belly swelling up and mm. even producing milk with there being no baby. Wow. No, I think that's what happened to Anne in 1534, but who knows? Well, you can understand the pressure, can't you? My God. You know, and when they dragged her in front of the court and all these trumped up charges of treason and everything, it was very interesting to me that a lot of them were sexual in nature. Yes, she was accused of adultery with five men and incest with her brother. The one that was treasonous was conspiring the king's death. But yeah, a lot of the charges against her were sexual because I suppose, given that they believed that women were totally insatiable, you can make a case for 
Of course, Henry couldn't satisfy her because she could only be satisfied by five men. In fact, he goes around afterwards saying that she slept with upwards of 100 men to make really? his case for it not being his fault. The other thing is also that's sexual about it is that Anne's brother tells the court or reads out loud charges against him that he and Anne have laughed at the king's manner of dressing at his terrible poetry. And this is originally given in French, but that Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman and has neither vigour nor potency. Oh. And that's said in front of 2,000 people in the Great Hall at the Tower of London. Wowzers. That is, yeah, it just all comes back to the penis, wasn't it? And the following year, there's a, a huge picture of Henry painted in a mural at Whitehall Palace that shows him full length with a really massive codpiece. Chest. Really How, waving. Could these things be connected in any could way? Could they possibly be connected? And um, who was it that he had to have his court physician make a declaration that he was still having nocturnal emissions. Oh, that's so that Anne of Cleves, yes. So because he didn't want to consummate the marriage with Anne of Cleves, because he thought that she wasn't a virgin, he looked at her. I mean, essentially, she seems to have been fairly big-breasted and he looked at her breasts and her waist and said he didn't think that she was a virgin and said he didn't desire her and that she smelt. But it wasn't because he was having any problems in any way. He was saying that he was having his, as you say, his nocturnal emissions, his wet dreams, so therefore it was not about him, it was all about her. Wow. And as I always say, there was someone in that bedchamber who was fat, smelly and not a virgin and it wasn't Anne of <laughs> It's, oh my God, I mean, you'd just terrified of him, wouldn't you? What on earth was he doing? Do you know, I read somewhat, there's, it occasionally comes round, doesn't it, that maybe Anne did sleep with some of these men. Maybe there's some truth in it. What's your thoughts on that? Is it just complete cobblers? I don't think there's any good evidence for it at all. The only evidence that suggests that is something called the Spanish Chronicle, which is a really gossipy 16th century account that has so many things in it that are clearly false and clearly sort of based on rumour and just brilliantly imaginative hearsay that I don't think it's for any good evidence for it. I think there's a sense of... Anne is one of those women who's really been punished in the historical imagination because she's kind of condemned for being a whore, mm. using the language of the time, and yet also for being a kind of vixen you know, what people might yep. call a cock tease, that she's not sleeping with him. So the problem is she's not sleeping with him and then and she's sleeping with him. and sleeping with lots of people. So she's punished for both her innocence and her guilt. <laughs> it, it, it's game. a classic kind of bind that a woman finds herself mm. in, I think. And I think that judgments on Anne Boleyn for centuries have been caught up with male ideas about women who they find too alluring. Yeah, like it's a real projection, isn't it? that we're projecting onto Anne, this kind of like femme fatale. And she was one of many, many women that gets called a whore when we don't know anything about their sex life at all. I find that fascinating as well, that that's the go-to insult in the same way that, you know, slut and slag might be today to try and attack that. And I don't in Tudor court records, you've got like working class women taking each other to court for calling each other a whore. It was considered that damaging 
at the that's time. That's right, that's right. Yeah, Laura Garrington's done some brilliant work on yeah. kind of slander and or to my husband's whore, strangely. It's a big insult. That you could sounds throw like a good else. thing to me. It sounds like, yeah. No, but you would say that to your female neighbour, saying oh, you'd understand. say, you're my husband's right. whore. <laughs> yeah, all right, that's not as good. Which is, you know, why would you want to say that about yourself? But the fundamental thing for Henry, I suppose, is that this idea that Anne is having sex with other people is deeply problematic for his honour in mm. the same way as to call a woman a whore is to totally impugn her honour. Yeah. To say that you can't satisfy your wife is to say that you're not a man. And if you can't rule your household, how can you rule a realm? It really is deeply problematic for him. Yeah, if she needs five other men to do the job you're supposed to be doing, then, yeah, yeah, I see how that one works. It's... Oh. Which is why he says... She slept with a hundred men. Like, there was no oh, way. It was all her fault. It was absolutely all her fault and not his fault at all. Do you think he had syphilis? I know it's quite trendy to retrospectively diagnose people. Yeah, and it's really hard to do. But the thing is about syphilis, of course, as you know, is that the treatment for it is mercury. And whilst mm. we don't have full medical records for Henry, we know that he wasn't treated with that at any point in time. Or indeed the sort of Gaia come the sort of new miraculous cure that was coming in from the West Indies at this point in time. And so it seems unlikely. We do know that the King of France, Francois I, did have it, but I don't think Henry did. He had an ulcer that was caused by a jousting accident, but it, syphilitic ulcers heal and this one didn't. So again, that doesn't work. Mm. So no, I don't think so. It wouldn't have made my top five list of shags anyway. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be very disappointed to hear that. <laughs> he'd have no interest in me whatsoever. I'm definitely not a virgin and not of good stock. Absolutely. No, but you're blonde and that went down well in the 16th century. Anne Boleyn is notably not the kind of trendy look in that oh, she really? has slightly dark skin and dark hair and that's considered not fashionable. Whereas light blonde hair like you Uh-oh. might have been there. Yeah, I could have had a king all to myself and hopefully avoided the axe. My God. Should we talk about the clitoris? We can talk about the clitoris. Is it ever a bad idea? Is it ever a bad idea? It never gets enough press. You were saying about the discovery of Mm. the clitoris. Doesn't that seem funny that suddenly (laughs) men discover it? It's possibly the most champion act of mansplaining in the whole of human history. I think it was in 1559, two Italian anatomists separately claimed to have discovered the clitoris. And it was even better, one of them was called Columbo. No, it's <laughs> promise. Not Columbo, the man in the Mac, Columbo. And the other one was Fallopio again. So he turns up again. And they both get very cross with each other, saying that they discovered it first. And there's this like proper little slagging match in there texts about how well you must have been spying on me when I discovered and it's complete cobbles because of course people have known about it for a very long time but in their defense what they discovered was that it was an organ whereas it wasn't just like a place to rub that felt nice and they kind of discovered through anatomy dissecting things they discovered the makeup of it but no they both claim to have discovered it they both make these really big claims about how I can't believe nobody's ever written about this before And they completely had. Like, you can find records going right back to the ancient world. None of them are very positive, by the way. The clit has not had a good press throughout most of its history. It's largely associated with lesbianism throughout most of its history. There's a real palpable anxiety right from the ancient texts that if a clitoris gets too big, it'll turn into a penis. 
So we've again got that fear of gender roles. And I think that's where this fear of lesbianism comes from. And it gets so outrageous that Bartholin, Dr. Bartholin, who gave his name to the Bartholin glands in, oh, I think it's the 17th century, he claimed that he'd treated a woman with a clitoris as big as a goose's neck. That did not happen. <laughs> just, and you kind of get these weird descriptions when they do turn up about clitorises growing to enormous sizes, creating really lusty women, that they turn them into lesbians. You get this kind of nonsense. And then, so when they discovered the clitoris in the 16th century, really what they mean is they kind of discovered the anatomy of it. And then it was re-rediscovered 50 years later by a Dutch anatomist who again said, I can't believe no one's ever found this before. But even before that, Thomas Vickery, who was one of Henry VIII's surgeons, actually, one of the ones who treated him for his ulcers, he's writing about the tentigo, which was the Latin kind of Mm. phrase for the clitoris. And that must have been, I think it's the late 1540s. So clearly this discovery, even in the midst of elite men writing about it, is not (laughs) Not the case. Not talking to one another, are they? They're so proud of themselves as well. And you just see this, it keeps like cropping up, like, oh my God, we found this thing. And then someone else would be like, I found a thing. And then, yeah, tend to go in Latin, it was landico, which was a really obscene word. That was like, it was such a rude word to say it. And I think that, you know what you were saying about Henry VIII? It's emasculating his idea that, that he couldn't satisfy a woman. I think the clitoris plays into that somewhere. And I think that's why it was attacked as this obscene thing, because it doesn't need a penis to pleasure it. You can remove the penis. You don't need a man for that. And I think there's something slightly emasculating about that. Um, it's really interesting what you were saying about the mutability of sex, as well as gender, I suppose, at this time, in that there are real fears. There's a story that goes around about a girl leaping over a fence and, you know, because they consider the interiority of a woman's genitalia to be an inside-out penis. Yes, they do, don't they? Like someone just got a willy and... There's not been enough heat in the process of conception to force it out of their bodies. They're (laughs) imperfect men. But it is possible for them to have a moment where they become male, where they become a man. So there's a story of this girl who leaps over a fence and her vagina falls out and then they realise that actually she's been a boy all along. And the terrifying possibility of reversal that men might somehow become women. Become a woman. The number of times I've jumped over a fence and my penis has fallen out. (laughs) When you look at these medical drawings, the early ones, there's loads in the Wellcome Trust. And you think you're looking at a sketch of a penis, but it's actually supposed to be a sketch of a vagina. And it's just like someone's just got a penis and just turned it inside out. And they've gone, there you go, that's yours. But that kind of viewing the vulva and the vagina as being either a penis or just as a nothing, that's still with us. Like when Freud was talking about He couldn't conceive of women having genitals. It was an absence of something. Like, they had penis envy. You know, you must envy that, not that you're actually really quite stoked that you've got a vagina because they're awesome. Yeah, and again, I picked up from your book that vagina, I didn't know this, the etymology of it, that it is just means sheath, that it is just a place to put a penis. It does. It's not great, is it? Is that, yeah, it just, that's something to hold a sword. So yeah, understanding the vulva in terms of it's for a penis, that has a really, really long history. And I think the clitoris is a threat to that. And you still have this idea. And I think now, thankfully, it's being challenged. Thanks, Harry Styles. But this idea that cunnilingus is somehow emasculating. 
And I'll just say that that's not personally me with Harry Styles, but him singing his song about watermelon. Yeah, go and have a look at the video. You'll know what I'm talking about. But for a long time, this idea that giving promenoral sex on a woman is somehow weak and emasculating and not something real men do. And I think that you can trace that all throughout history. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, it was regarded as something disgusting and obscene. And I think that, again, is because the narrative around that was only weak men would do that. Weak men whose penises didn't work. Long well, it feels like a perfect place to uh, leave the chat. I don't know about... <laughs> <laughs> it's been so nice talking to you. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Anytime. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.